Somebody is Jesus, and I know he's mine. And at last, when our work is done, he will call us home to the mansion he has prepared, nevermore to roam. We'll sit down by the riverside, cares all away and with never a pain to bear what a happy day somebody loves me and he answers my prayers I love somebody I know he cares somebody tells me not to repine that somebody is Jesus and my prayers I love somebody I know he cares somebody tells me not to repine that somebody is Jesus and I know he's mine that somebody is Jesus and I know he's mine Amen. That somebody is Jesus, and I know he's mine. I hope you know he's yours. The Bible says the Lord knoweth them that are his. I hope you know him. Take your Bible, turn over the book of John. John chapter 15, verse 5. John chapter 15, verse 5. We get things moving along today, but I did, uh, I kind of made a statement. I don't know if it was last Sunday night or this last Sunday morning, I can't remember, but this morning, I wanted to, I'd mentioned something about jokes for smart people. And, uh, you know, I, I, so I don't know if it was the morning or not, but I want to I kind of wet your whistle. Tonight, I'm going to share just a, a couple more uh, jokes, but these are for smart people, okay? So you may or may not get them. I, you know, I'm not responsible for whether you're smart or not. Okay, so I'm just going to give them to you like I got them. And uh, like I say, they, they were nothing for me. Uh, really simple, but... Uh, for you, I don't know. Okay, so anyway, jokes for smart people. Here they are now. A proton. No, make it a photon. Is going through airport security. The TSA agent asks if he has any luggage. The photon says, no, I'm traveling light. No, I'm traveling light. See, most of you didn't get that. Okay, so moving on. I told you they were first. It's jokes for smart people. I'm sorry if I've left you out today. A logician, not a magician. A logician. You say, define that. No, it's part of being a smart joke. The logician's wife is having a baby. 
The doctor immediately hands the newborn to dad. The wife says, is it a boy or girl? The logician says, yes. One more, one more, okay? Because I can tell these are going over like lead balloons. Yes. How can you tell the difference between a chemist and a plumber? Well, you ask them to pronounce a particular word that's spelled U-N-I-O-N-I-Z-E-D. It's funny because, watch this now, the labor-conscious plumber, he's going to pronounce the word as unionized. But a chemist would probably say unionized. Okay. Maybe there are a lot of smart people here. You're getting them, aren't you? Yes, very good. Very good. Well, tonight I'll give you a couple more. There's a few good ones. Uh, but anyway, we'll get those tonight. Now, uh, Luke, John chapter 15, verse 5. We're just going to read the one verse. The Bible says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. Again, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. Now from the passage we said, we learned that as the branches we're to abide or to rest and dwell in the vine. We said that as we abide, we are sure without a doubt to bring forth much fruit. He says the same bringeth forth much fruit. Now again, the place of the branch is in the vine. That's where it belongs. You take the branch, sever the branch from the vine, and it's going to die. A vine is lifeless, it's useless, it's even fruitless unless it abides in the vine. So from the passage flows a very important and very powerful principle. For without me, he says, ye can do nothing. I'm the vine, ye the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. A great principle, apart from the vine, the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no spiritual life. There's no spiritual fruit. There is nothing. And so, it led us to our conclusion or theme for the year. And we said, you know what? In light of the fact that there's no spiritual life or spiritual fruit without him, and if without him we can do nothing, then guess what? We need to pray then. Hence, let's pray. That's our theme. So we began a series on prayer last week. And last week we said, we said, you know, prayer is a privilege. Prayer is a privilege. We said it's a privilege because of who God is and who we are. The fact is, is that God is the creator of all things. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, the last, the great I Am. I mean, he is, he is higher than the highest. He's greater than the great. There's none like God. And we said, boy, in light of the fact that who God is, it is a privilege to be able to go to him in prayer. It's a privilege based on the fact of who we are, sinners in need or deserving hell. And yet God blesses us and permits us and gives us the privilege of going to him in prayer. Even though God is higher than we can even imagine, what is man that thou art mindful of him, the psalmist said. Boy, what a privilege it is to pray in light of the fact of who God is and who we are. But then we also said prayer is a privilege because of what prayer is and what prayer does. Boy, prayer is communion between mankind and God, between the created and the creator. Prayer is communion that brings us into fellowship with God and allows us to spend time with him. But what does prayer do? Oh, my. 
it places us in the very presence and greatness of God. I mean, prayer engages all the forces of heaven. I mean, it unlocks all the resources and all the power of God. We said that when we pray, we go from earth to heaven, from the temporal to eternal, from hopelessness to hope, a place where the impossible is normal and normal is simply impossible. Because, boy, with God, all things are possible. He's a powerful, mighty God. What a privilege it is to pray. This week, we want to focus our attention on this thought. The power of prayer. We've already considered the privilege, but let's look just for a moment today at the power of prayer. The power of prayer. I want to pray and then we'll continue on. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, you'd bless us in these next few moments as we address and deal with the subject matter of the power of prayer. Thank you for the privilege, the opportunity. But Lord, may we recognize and understand the power that it affords us. May you motivate us to do more praying as a result. We'll thank you now, we'll praise you. And Lord, if there be any in this room that have yet to receive and accept your son, Jesus, as their Savior. May they pray before they leave to receive and accept your mercy, your grace, and your love. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, first of all, there are certain things in our country, our world, our culture, that, that represent power today. One of them is something called money. Money or finances. Yes, this is a $20 bill. Now, it is a copy off of a copy machine, so don't knock me over after the service and steal my money. But it isn't really a copy. But nonetheless, if we could do them this well, we would probably never have need for money at the church. But nonetheless, the fact is is that this right here represents power in our, our, our culture. Okay, you've got money, you've got power. At least that's, that's the perception today. And sadly enough, if we're not careful, we somehow fall back on things that we've been taught are powerful to, to provide us with, you know, either the things we desire, love, or need, or possibly even to get us out of trouble or problems that we may face. So if we're not careful, we buy into the idea, even as believers, that this equals power. That if you've got a problem in your life, just get more of this and you'll be power, powerful enough to overcome it. You've got a situation that you can't over, deal with, just get more of this and you'll be perfectly fine. Uh, money, dollar bills, finances, they represent power today. There's another thing too, you, you think about it, things like this, diplomas. Or degrees. Diplomas or degrees. They represent power today. If you just get an education, you'll make more money. By the way, that's statistically true. It's statistically true. You'll make more money in your lifetime if you get a a college degree. You'll make money in your lifetime if you get a high school diploma. Things like that. So there are, there's a, a tie to that. But hold on. Be careful that you don't buy into the idea somehow that, that this is, I mean, this is power in our world. It's upside down. This is power. Okay, education. Diplomas, degrees. Money, diplomas, degrees. These things represent power in our culture. Not only that, but titles. Titles represent power. Now, when I was in the Philippines the first time, 
I received this plaque from Brother Ed Lorena. He had one on his desk and he said, boy, every preacher in America needs one of those. Now, I've never had it on my desk. It's just a little bit large for me. But it just says Pastor O'Donnell. It's, it's a title. I'm Pastor O'Donnell, if you will. Now, listen, you know what? There's nothing wrong with being a doctor. There's nothing wrong with being this or that or anything else. Nothing wrong with that. But it represents power, does it not? That's what it does in our culture. You got a PhD, you got a doctorate degree, you've got some kind of title, you're the chief CEO of a company. That title often represents in the minds of Americans power. Power. That's what represents power in our country. So money, dollar bills, finances, diplomas and degrees, um, positions and titles, they represent power to us today. I, I think about Technology. Technology and information. We say that information is power. And there's truth to that. It's correct, is there not? I mean, there's nothing wrong. I, I get that. And I'm not, I'm not downplaying that. Okay? These things all represent power in our culture. But technology. Here's just a simple little iPhone. Many of you have a phone like that or you've got some other variation of it. The truth is today is that this represents information. You get on the information highway. Everything's at your fingertips. We have information, and information is power. We have the ability to, te through technology to uh, achieve things that we've never achieved. Power. Power. And then we think about organization and machinery, so to speak. To organize well. It makes power in our nation. Companies that are best organized often do the best and they grow the greatest and they see uh, success like others that are not organized don't. So we see that there's a number of things in our world, our culture, that represent some things. We, we have, of course, money or dollar bills. We've got diplomas and degrees. We've got positions and titles. We've got technology information. we got organization and machinery. They all represent power today in the world we live in. Now, we, we cannot be fooled into believing that they don't. They do. They play a factor. But may I say this? They pale in comparison to the power available at the mercy seat of God. That's the thing we have to keep in mind as believers. See, the greatest power in the universe is not found on earth. It's found in heaven. And you know what prayer does? Prayer bridges the gap between heaven and earth. It bridges the gap. It gives us that ladder, so to speak, to climb right up into the arms of God, into the, the, the storehouse of heaven. It's interesting we're going to take just a few minutes and consider this, but when you read the only inspired book on the face of the planet, when you read the Word of God, the only inspired book, I'm not talking about humanly inspired, I'm talking about divinely inspired. When you read this book, the history of the church in the days of the apostle as it's recorded, truly is supernatural. It's supernatural what took place. 
I think about our day and age, and I think about what's going on in the church and in the lives of believers, and I think about the powerlessness that we face each day, the fact that we seem to fail in our, our, our Christian lives and our walks. We, can't, we struggle with our devotions. We struggle with prayer. We struggle with being faithful in God's house. We struggle with the very basics and the fundamentals of the faith. And we ask ourselves, why am I struggling so much? If God's so big and if the Holy Spirit's so real, why is it I struggle so much? We say in our churches, we look across the crowds and we say, why aren't there more people falling falling on their knees before God at the altars? Why aren't there more souls being saved in the ministry? Why don't we see God reaching lives and changing people like we used to? Especially like we saw in the early church. Well, I'll tell you what, you look at that early church and you know what you find? You find a story of constant victory. Continued victory, perpetual victory, perpetual progress. Look, if you would, over in the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at just a few verses and we're going to skip right through quickly, but look at chapter 2, verse 47. Early on in the history of of the, the local church, notice what it says here, what they were doing. The Bible says they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. The implication is that every day people are being saved and added to the church. You don't get added to the church unless you know Christ is your Savior, unless you've been scripturally baptized. And the fact is is that people were being saved and baptized and added to the church daily. Not only that, but look at Acts 4.4. Howbeit many of them which heard the word, what? Believed. And the number of the men was about 5,000. Man, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, we talk about Pentecost and we see 3,000 being saved at Pentecost. But may I say here, we have 5,000 men coming to Christ here. That's an amazing feat. That's a supernatural act. That's a God thing going on. We see in Acts chapter 5, verse 14, we see there in that particular passage, it it states, And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women, multitudes. We're not talking about a soul here and there. We're talking about multitudes of souls coming to Christ. Boy, the victories that they're seeing in the New Testament church, the early church was phenomenal. It was supernatural. Right from the very beginning, we have 3,000. We have 5,000 men alone. We've got multitudes of men and women being saved and lives being transformed and changed consistently, continually. In addition to that, look in Luke Acts 6, 7. The Bible goes on to state, and the word of God increased. Acts 6, 7. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Isn't that amazing? Even the priests, those rooted in Judaism, are coming to Christ. Multitudes being saved. Lives being transformed and changed. God doing a great work. Wow, the early church. Boy, if you would take the time to survey chapters 2 through 28 of the book of Acts, you're going to find a constant theme. You know what the theme is? 
victory. Every time you turn around, something great is taking place. God is doing a supernatural work in lives. God is doing something magnificent in the church house. And in chapter after chapter after chapter, there's evidence of the supernatural. Now, I don't know if it's just me or not, but it seems to me that the church today lacks the victory that the early church did. I mean, would you agree with me that we're not seeing that kind of progress in the ministry or in the church today? Someone says, well, yeah, I would agree with that. So why, is, why, why this difference between the early church and the church of Jesus Christ today? Why do you think there's such a difference? Someone may say, well, it's because there's so much opposition today. We live in a different day. We live in a different age, and there's so much opposition today. Really? Like there wasn't opposition in those days? I mean, the opposition in those days was extremely bitter. It was most determined against them. It was very relentless every time they turned around. I mean, in comparison to that, which you and I face today, ours is but mere child's play, my friend. I mean, we don't have opposition anywhere remotely close to the kind of opposition that the early church faced in reaching. You say, yeah, but the people were different. They were more open then. Oh, those priests that got saved there. My friend, do you realize that it was, it was you know, uh, Paul who they had commissioned go out and murder believers? These priests weren't those that were saying, oh, we, we want to believe. We just are struggling. If we could just get over the hump, we would be glad to be saved. No, they were diametrically opposed to Jesus Christ. And don't tell me about a Roman government who was steeped in paganism, who worshipped idols consistently, who themselves found themselves murdering and and ultimately standing in opposition to Christians, who ultimately Titus himself in 70 AD would say that the Christians, they were the ones that burned down Rome. Why? Because he hated Christians. Don't tell me they didn't face opposition like we do. No, you're correct, I guess. You are absolutely right. They didn't face opposition like we do. They faced a lot more. And yet, we see victory after victory after victory in their churches and in their lives and ministries. How's this possible? I believe one word says it all. Prayer. The power of prayer. See, it was a praying church. And it was a praying ministry. It was that praying church and ministry that rendered the victories. Turn of you into Acts 2.42. Early on again. Before we even see those great victories being, those folks added to the church daily, such as should be saved. We note that the Bible says in Acts 2.42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in what? Prayers. They continued steadfastly in prayers. They continued steadfastly in prayers. Continuing meaning constantly, always. Steadfastly meaning firm and fixed. They weren't variating. They weren't vacillating. They weren't up and down. They weren't praying today and not tomorrow. They were consistently, constantly, steadfastly praying. They didn't just simply squeeze it into their their busy schedules. 
No, they planned it and they performed it and they did it consistently and regularly. They made prayer a big deal in the early church. They made prayer a big deal in the believer's life. They made it a priority. Let, let, let me just make it say it this way to somehow illustrate it. Would you think about not taking a bath or a shower all week long and going to work every day? You'd say, no, I, I, there's a priority in my life. I've got to be clean. I have to be hygienically sound. I can't go in there smelling. I can't go in there looking raggedy or ragtag. No, I, I mean, I, I, I'm going to take that shower. I'm going to take a bath. I'm going to get cleaned up. That's a priority. I think that's important in my life. How many times have we taken a shower and headed to work before we've ever met with God? Can I say that our priorities may be a little mixed up then? I wonder if that shower is going to provide you with the power you need to face tragedy in your life. I wonder if that shower is going to enable you to deal with the problems that you're going to face as a believer in opposition to your spiritual life. I wonder if that that shower is going to enable you to stand tall amongst your friends and family as temptation comes. Probably not. But time with God would. Prayer would. See, again, I'm just a little concerned. They made it a priority. They said to themselves, prayer's so important, it's on the schedule, and I'm not moving it. A praying church. Praying people. In Acts chapter 6, verse 4. Look there, if you would. Notice what's said here. This is the, the preachers, yes, I understand that the apostles speaking, but... We're going to see that once again, their spirit, their attitude was that of prayer. How valuable, how important, how significant was prayer? Notice, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's what they said. What did they do in in relationship or, or as a result of this desire? They said, listen, we need to find somebody to wait on the table, so to speak. We need some folks in the church to do those so-called mundane tasks, those physical labors, so that we can spend time in prayer and in the Word of God. We need to be able to feed the people. We need to be able to feed our souls so that we can be effective in the ministry God's given us. I'm going to say this, and you don't have to agree with it, and you don't have to like it. But can I tell you, there are things I do I shouldn't do that take me away from prayer and the Word. And in some cases, it's because people won't willingly step up and wait the tables. You say, that's not fair. Why are you throwing that on us? Because that's exactly what the apostles said to their people. It is not fit for us to wait on tables. We got to get in that book and in prayer. And their people stepped up and said, you're right. Let's appoint some people to do the grunt work. Man, there ought to be a list of people that I could call and say, you know what, I need you at two in the morning to drive over here, pick this up and take it over there. That's how it ought to work. Now, I don't, it's not that way. And it could be because I don't ask. Okay, you have not because you ask not. So I get, I'm taking responsibility for that myself. But can I tell you something? That should be the attitude of every church member. We want to make sure that our pastor can spend every moment in prayer and in preparation. 
That ought to be your attitude. What's he doing that he shouldn't be doing? You know what? That should work with every, in a sense, every staff member, in a sense, that's trying to meet the needs of people. And, and if you aren't, say, a, a, even a class leader, maybe you should be asking, what can I do to help take something off you so that you can be more effective in reaching and, and ministering to the people here? Working together as a church family. Can I tell you that'll never happen outside of us being prayer warriors, though? The sensitivity that we have to the ministry, the sensitivity that we have to lost souls, the sensitivity that we have to the the work of Christ is indirectly proportionate to the amount of time and effort we put toward prayer in our life. Because, see, prayer doesn't just fix problems. Prayer fixes us. It molds us. It it places us in a place where we're face-to-face with Jesus and we become like the people we are with. It was leadership and the people praying. Look in Acts chapter 12. I know that was pretty rough because I don't usually say stuff like that. But I do want you to realize my heart, as we get into this theme, I am more convicted than ever that I do not spend time in prayer like I ought to. I came in, listen, I, I know, I know, singing the blues, let me play the violin. I get it, I got it. Everybody's got a sad story. But I just want you to understand, I came into my office the other day with three things to do. And you know when I got started on them? At four in the afternoon. And the three things I had to do was make sure my Sunday school lesson was solid, make sure my message for Sunday morning was solid, make sure Sunday night was prepared. And I started on that at four in the afternoon. Now listen, I'm realizing that Mark O'Donnell is not where he belongs in the ministry. I'm getting it figured out finally, after 25 years of it. And I'm asking you to be sensitive through this year, to pray and ask God, where do I fit into the ministry to bear the burdens, not only of the pastor, but of the ministry itself so that there's, he never has to worry or think about things. So whoever's in charge of me and my ministry never has to question, will I be where I'm supposed to be doing what I'm supposed to do? They can focus on their portion of it. Chapter 12, verse 5 and 7. Notice this now. He says in chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. Peter's now in prison. Now watch this. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side. He he, he elbowed him, if you will. And raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And wist not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. Even Peter's like, This is not happening, man. This is this is. Crazy. I got to be sleeping. I'm dreaming, man. 
Verse 10, when they were past the first and the second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which openeth to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came and hearkened named Rhoda. There was a show called that once, years ago, or a character in one. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. She came to the gate. She saw, oh my, it's Peter. And she took off running back to tell everybody. She was so excited. He goes on to say, and when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate from the gladness, uh, for gladness, but ran in and told Peter, told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then they said, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But he, beckoning unto them with a hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go shew these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. You say, how was that happening? Verse 5 says, he was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto him, unto God for him. Prayer was being given. Prayer was being shared. Prayer was being lifted up to heaven on behalf of Peter. We've got to pray for Peter. He's in prison. They're going to kill him. And God supernaturally answered their prayer, supernaturally delivered him out of the hand of the guards in the prison Prayer had made, prayer made on his behalf had worked. I'm going to tell you something. Prayer still works. It still works. You know, we can never forget that God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. He is still the same God he's always been. That means prayer still works today. And you know, when the devil sees a man or a woman who really believes in prayer, who knows how to pray, and who is, is really praying. Even more, though, when the devil sees a church, a whole church, whose face is before God in prayer, he knows one thing. I'm done in that church. I'm done in that community. He knows that. Because prayer is the key. Uh, John Knox he, he had a ministry of prayer and preaching. And he was well known, it was well known that John Knox had a reputation with Mary, Queen of Scots. He had a reputation not only with her, but with those that served with her. And the government continued to persecute Knox, but it also reported this. It stated, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Now, why in the world? Because John Knox's prayers made a difference more than all the armies of Europe. Now, can I tell you that if his prayers were that powerful, what could we do if we prayed? 
Boy, that's evidence of a power of, of, of prayer and that's power. Turn to James chapter 5, verse 16. James chapter 5, verse 16. Hebrew, James. I got to learn things that way. I don't know about you, but I do things in little groups because I, I have a little mind. So I can only remember groups, little ones. Hebrews, James. I got that one down. Notice what it says in chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. Watch it now. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. By the way, I'm going to stop right there and I want to issue an apology to all of you. I was wrong for sharing my burden with you. Dead wrong. I should have never told you how I felt that day. I was wrong. I'm just going to confess that now. Holy Spirit's smiting me big time. I just want you to know that's my problem to deal with. And if there's any fault, it's not yours. It's mine for not delegating properly. I just want to make that clear, okay? All right, thank you. Now, he says in James chapter 5, verse 16, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now, the word translated prayer here is a very significant word. It describes prayer as the definite expression of a deeply felt need. Again, expresses prayer or explains it like this. The definite expression of a deeply felt need. And you know what? Uh, let's face it. If you take that word and you just narrow it all down, you just boil it all down to one word, it would be need. It's expressing need. Therefore, our text is teaching us something. It's telling us that there's a definite and determined prayer to God. And he's saying that that definite and determined prayer availeth much. It availeth much. And again, that word availeth means to be strong. It means to have power or force. It means to exercise power. So here's the thought then behind the verse. That definite and determined prayer exerts much power in its working. It I mean, it exerts much power. That it achieves so much power that it achieves great things. So when we make ourselves, avail ourselves to prayer, when we make a definite and determined effort to pray and to focus our attention on heaven, to take our requests and our needs before God, he's saying that, that it exerts a tremendous amount of power and it works, it works, and it works, and it achieves great things. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It does accomplish. It gets the job done. Now, it's interesting that if you take that passage now and we look at verse 17 of James chapter 5, he says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. So he immediately follows this thought up with this man who God used to do great and mighty works. How did he do them? Through prayer. What did he accomplish through prayer? Three and a half years, no rain on the earth. That's crazy, right? That's nuts. But yet that's the power of prayer.
One of the most remarkable men in Scotland's history was John Welsh. He was the son-in-law of John Knox, who we just spoke about a moment ago. John Knox, of course, was a great Scotch preacher. He was a reformist. He's well known for, you know, as the, the father. This particular man, John Welsh, is simply known as, as, as John Knox's son-in-law. But in some ways, he was a far remark, more remarkable man than even John Knox was. You know, one place I read stated that most people believe that John Knox made the statement, give me Scotland or I die. This particular person said that wasn't the case at all. Matter of fact, they claimed that it wasn't John Knox, but instead his son-in-law, John Welsh, that said it. I don't know for sure. But I know John Welsh became a tremendous preacher, influential preacher, a tremendous man of God. John Welsh put it on record before he died, mind you, that he counted his day ill-spent that he did not put seven or eight hours into secret prayer. John Welsh would pray at least seven to eight hours every day in secret prayer. Now, that's an amazing feat. Now, when he did die, there was an old Scotsman who knew him from his boyhood. And he made the statement, he said, John Welsh was a type of Christ. Now, we know he wasn't truly a type of Christ. But what the man was trying to say is, he said he was a tremendous picture of Christ that he had adopted the character of Christ, that he was Christ-like, so much so that when I see John, when I see uh, Brother Welsh, I see Christ in him. Do you know how he accomplished that goal, that feat? By meeting seven hours a day with the Lord through prayer. You, listen, let's be honest. The reason we're not more Christ-like is because we don't spend as much time with Christ as we ought to be. It's pretty simple. Prayer is powerful. It changes us. It changes our circumstances. It changes our churches. It changes our culture. It changes our world. Prayer is powerful. You don't have any natural gifts. You say, I have nothing to offer God. Well, then get in on the Holy Spirit and get the power of God. And you know how you get that? Through prayer. You don't have to be powerless. I don't have to be powerless. Our church doesn't have to be powerless. But we need to pray. We've got to pray. You want the power to live the Christian life? To overcome sin? To win souls? To raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? You want to just simply live victoriously in Christ and for Christ? Pray. Pray. Prayer is available to those who, uh, power is available to all who pray. It's that simple. Power that brings salvation. You lost today without Christ? Let me tell you something. You cry out to God and say, I'm a sinner and I need you and you're the only way that I'm going to be forgiven. You're the only one that can forgive me, take me to heaven and ultimately give me uh, eternal life. He's going to listen to your prayer. Uh, Power that brings sanctification, separation and, and set apart for God's service in your life. It's power that brings supply in your life, meets your every need. Power that brings strength to overcome and to, to, to be victorious. Power that brings success just in every area. Prayer. Let me ask you, how much do you pray? How fervently do you pray? Pray. 
How fervently? Truly, how much isn't as important as how fervently? I pray an hour. You seen anything? Maybe it's that you're not fervent enough. Not serious enough. Maybe you're distracted in your prayers. May God help us to understand the power of prayer. Prayer is powerful. We have the privilege of prayer, but I want you to never forget the power of prayer. I don't have time to go through a bunch of illustrations that I had. I wanted to share them with you. But I want to encourage you to make prayer a priority in your life. To set time aside to get the job done. To make sure that those loved ones, family members, and friends that are lost are being prayed for. To take time to pray for your children that as they grow up, they'll grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and that they'll be faithful to Christ and that they'll meet the right one in the long run. I mean, let's be praying like we ought to pray. Pray for our leaders. Pray for our pastors. Pray for our, 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 our Sunday school teachers. Pray for the ministries of the church. May God help us to pray because there's a tremendous power in prayer. May God help us to pray and in so doing, experience the power that God alone can give us. Father, we come to you. We thank you for your grace in our life. And Lord, we uh, are desperately in need of you. Father, prayer is lacking in my life. I don't pray like I ought to pray. Lord, I'm, I'm, and, and as a result, I'm shortchanging not only myself, but I'm shortchanging my family. I'm shortchanging the church. Father, because there's so much more that could be available to me and the ministry if I would pray the way I ought to. But I dare say, Lord, that probably each and every one of us could say the same thing about our lives. Lord, may we never be satisfied with where we're at. May we always want more. May we always want to do more. Not for ourselves, not to get something for ourselves, but for your glory and your sake. We need you now. We pray that, Lord, if there be any that are lost here today without Jesus Christ, that they would come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Lord, I don't want to see them die and go to hell. I don't want to see them pay for their sin. Lord, I want you to pay for it. Lord, I pray that their heart would be convicted of sin, that they'd recognize you're the only one that can forgive them and ultimately give them eternal life. We'll thank you for that and we'll praise you for it. Oh God, grant us grace and strength today. May we honor you with our life and our lips. And may we pray like never before so that we can see you exalted before a world in need of you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Every head bowed, every eye closed.